Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. Well, here we are. Welcome to another episode of the Love of Life podcast. We have Andrea Schwartz with us today from Calcedon. Andrea is the Christian education advocate for the Calcedon Foundation. She's an author and she is also the host of the Out of the Question podcast. And we are really excited to have her on tonight. Yes, welcome. Thank you. It's always nice to be on the other end of the interview. (laughs) Right, exactly. Just to get started. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I was about to ask you, where are you originally from? So if you hear me talk long enough, people from this part of the country will say, oh, we know where she's from. But I grew up right outside of New York City. Okay, that was my guess. (laughs) Really? Okay. See, I don't think I have an accent. But then again, nobody thinks they have an accent. Yes, that's true. (laughs) <laughs> and how many years have you been out in, you're in California? Well, how many years have you been there? the truth is I've been in California longer than I was ever in New York. Um, I'm, I think it was 45 years. I was I, I'm, next month. I'll be married 46 years. So it was a year before that, that uh, we moved to California and, um, I still think of myself as a New Yorker. I don't know. I think you always remember where you're from originally. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, I'll just say up front, we love the Calcedon Foundation. We love Rush Dooney. We love your podcast. Um, But for those folks that are listening or watching who have no idea, possibly, and I don't know how they could know, not know, but for those who don't know about Calcedon, give us some background on the Calcedon Foundation. Sure. First of all, I would say you could go up to 100 people in an airport and ask them about Calcedon, and they wouldn't know. I've always called it one of the best kept secrets that has influenced Christendom beyond what most people even know. Um, I used to, you know, I used to be at the table at conventions from for representing Calcedon homeschooling conventions. And I would say, have you heard of Calcedon? Have you heard of Rush Dooney? And they go, no. I said, well, he's the reason you're homeschooling. And they'd say, really? <laughs> so I was homeschooled for 12 years and I recently have found out, oh, this is where all this came from. Exactly. So Calcedon Foundation was founded by Rusas John Rush Dooney, known to people today as R.J. Rush Dooney. And to those of us who had the privilege of knowing him, we referred to him as Rush it was hard to call someone Rusas, and I think he knew that, and so he said, just call me Rush. But he is the child of Armenian immigrants who actually um, had him in mom's womb when they were leaving the Armenian Holocaust with the Turks um, persecuting Armenians. 
And so by God's grace, they ended up in America. He was born, I think, in New York, but eventually his family moved to California near the Fresno area for people who are familiar with California. So he was a farm boy. He grew up on a farm. A couple of times his father moved around, but he used to say that he is from a line of pastors from Armenia dating back to 900 BC. No, 900 AD, excuse me. Um, Anyway, uh, so he always was interested in learning. He was an incredibly well-read individual. And when he knew his calling was to preach the word or to develop it more, the first thing he wanted to do is to go work on an Indian reservation because he thought if he could make the faith relevant there, then he could make the faith relevant anywhere. And so after that, um, he, by that time, I think he had like four children and he moved back to, I believe it was California at the time and worked for various foundations, but understood pretty early on that if he was going to make an impact, he had to be able to freely bring the Bible into his research and his writing. And not everybody was always interested in that. Some were more interested in him being a conservative bent or things like that. So he started the Chalcedon Foundation in 1965. Uh, He was living in Southern California at the time. And he had a small group of people who were willing to fund his work. And so going back to 1965, um, the Chalcedon Foundation has compiled most of what he wrote from the beginning, which is available today. And I have to tell you, when I first encountered him back in 1985 and started reading his books, I was like, what is this guy talking about? I I'd considered myself a smart person, but it was a challenge, not so much because he was a difficult read, but he was so dense in the concepts that he was promoting. And he sort of had a pessimistic view of the outcome of humanism prevailing in a culture. And I remember reading going, oh, he's just so much of a downer at first. It will never happen this way. Well, if you read some of his writing from the 60s, from the 70s, 80s on through, you'll say how prophetic he was because he understood that, obviously he didn't make this up, but almost Everything he's written could be summed up with, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it, which is called, of course, from Psalm 127. So I met him after I started reading his books and I found out he was alive. And I'm the kind of person who's like, oh, he's alive. We have to go meet him. And it turned out he wasn't that far away from where we were because we're in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he was about two and a half, three hours um, away. And the story goes, we showed up, he never said leave, and we never did. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What was your first role when you first started there? Well, my first role was as somebody who was reading his books, donating to the ministry. Um, Funny, when my husband would have off on weekends, which would be like once or twice a month, we would put the kids in the car and go up to Vallecito that my children always thought where people go on vacation was Vallecito because that's where we would go. And um, we would spend a lot of time 
uh, talking to him, asking him tons of questions, which I look back now and I say, what a patient man, because some of my questions were stupid. Some of my questions were just very, very narrow. I would argue with him, like, why does the Bible say this? And he would say, Andrea, I didn't write it. I just believe it. <laughs> right. He says, there are things I don't like in it either, but that doesn't change the fact that that's what God said. Yeah. And then I wanted to volunteer because that's the kind of person I am. If I'm behind something, I want to help. And then eventually, so we met first in 1985 by 86. I'm volunteering, typing up some of his manuscripts and, and you know, getting them ready for publication. And then by 1992, he said, you know, you're working for us. Why don't you just work for us? And so that's, I've been actually employed since 1992 with Kelsey. Okay, that's great. And have you had various roles over the years? After yeah, I was the person. And... Yeah, I was the person who did what everybody else didn't want to do, uh-huh. and I would sometimes have ideas like maybe we should do this or maybe we should do that. So pretty much at first, I was getting manuscripts ready for publication, uh, typesetting. Eventually, other people took that over. I became like a project manager, or uh, let's have a conference and and let's work out the details always looking for ways to venture into circles that I was traveling, which homeschooling was among them. And that's how I sort of got to be called Calcedon's Christian education advocate, because I saw in my own family and with people around me that a Christian education was vital if we were going to advance the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. How have you seen it? Now I was raised homeschooled and, um, she has a little bit of homeschool in her background as well, um, as well as private and public education. How right. would you see the progression since Rush started talking about homeschooling back in the, at least I want to say, I can trace it back to the 80s. I'm sure you can tell us an exact date. Um, well, I don't know if I can tell you an exact date. He started talking about it in his book, The Messianic Character of American Education, where he outlined how its roots were deliberately there to counteract Christianity. And then he also wrote another book entitled Intellectual Schizophrenia, that you want to educate children as Christians, but then you send them to schools that say the opposite. And so you produce schizophrenic people. Mm -hmm. Um, Homeschooling, from my perspective, went through a variety of stages. So I enter the picture homeschooling my son in the early 80s. So if you were the 80s, I was homeschooling when your mom and dad were homeschooling. And then we were not the pioneers. There were pioneers had come before that. They were the people who probably didn't tell too many people what it was they were doing, but they (laughs) were doing it. By the time I'm homeschooling, people know a little bit more about it, but they still think it's weird. And I'm sure you guys went through this as well. No, never. (laughs) (laughs) So when we would be out and somebody would say to my son, why aren't you in school? He would say, oh, in service day, you know, that made everybody be quiet. Or do you like your teacher? Yes. Is she as nice as your mother? Oh yes. She's very nice. (laughs) So we just got used to not waving flags because we knew that there were people who made it their mission in life to run other people's lives, whether or not they were ever asked to do so. So um, it was still not, publicized, but if someone asked me, I didn't lie about it. Mm-hmm. Then it got to be a point where it was fashionable to homeschool. And 
people would come up to you and say, oh, I totally get why you're homeschooling. Um, yeah. Public schools are so bad. And then it changed again, where um, I would say it's hard to define homeschooling today mm-hmm. because some people think it's doing outside school in your house. Yeah. Other people will look at it as imparting the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And not being so concerned with whether or not someone can ever do the quadratic equation. Um, and so you have hybrids now where people come together for three days a week and then they go home and do their other stuff. That's why instead of promoting Christian, I mean, home education, I like to promote Christian education. However, your children are going to be educated, the Bible needs to be the foundation. So you might do that at a day school, you might do that at a home school just exclusively or a hybrid. But um, what you don't want to look at education is everything everybody else is doing in Jesus name. Amen. Um, You have to do more than that. Right. Exactly. Um, Are there preferred perhaps curriculum that you in that that you enjoy or your son did, or perhaps even now that you've heard or read about now that you're not homeschooling, are there things that you promote or things that you like within the homeschooling world to say this curriculum promotes a Christian education predominantly? Okay. So first of all, our family didn't end with my son. Um, I have two daughters as well. And so I was homeschooling for over 28 years because the difference in age between oldest and youngest was 14 and a half years. So my homeschool changed its look and orientation a lot. And, uh, So I was eclectic. I would pick from here, pick from there. I might also have secular uh, publishers, but we'd sit down and we would talk about, okay, they say this, the Bible says this, and we could go into it that way. And because my children were between the first and the second, six and a half years, and the second and third, seven and a half years, I had an opportunity to do a lot of individual work with them, especially when Youngest as a baby, we would do our serious subjects when she was taking a nap, things like that. And so my perspective, and it's changed, I would say developed, not really changed, it's been augmented, that the important thing is to teach the student, not teach the subject. Mm. And one of the advantages of a homeschool situation is that you can do just that, Um, you know, I'm sure you guys had brothers or sisters. Not everybody's the same. Somebody's really good at math. Somebody's really gifted in music. Somebody's a great communicator. Someone's a jokester. Someone is really good with his hands, whatever it is. So if the foundation of learning is to be a useful person for the kingdom of God, then you learn the basics and then you develop the specific areas where there's interest and capability. So as far as my favorite curriculum, and I know a lot of people wouldn't say what I'm about to say, the parents, you need to find your favorite curriculum, look through all of them, which can you see yourself doing? Some people like very much the teacher's manual that says, okay, day one, you do this, day two, you do that. Other people, that's just not them. They get an overview. Oh, I see at the end of, you know, second grade, people expect someone to know this stuff. So find the thing that you can see yourself teaching and how you would teach it. And I think that's a better way to go. And there's tons of them out there. And so um, always talk to other homeschoolers in your area. 
maybe you can buy some curriculum used and so you don't have to spend as much money, but mostly have a mission on what it is you're trying to accomplish with the education of your children. And you'll be in a much better position than to know, okay, what do I need? What are the tools I'm going to use for this? Yeah, that's good. That's very practical. (laughs) Yeah. Um, At this point in the, in the game, if you will, in our culture with public schools, drifting further and further. I mean, they've been gone for since I, before I was alive, um, as far as teaching of evolution and getting rid of prayer in schools. I mean, that was long before I was educated long before my homeschool days. If a Christian family is still sending their kids to public schools, what would you say about that now? I mean, as far as where, okay. That's what I would say. And if they don't understand why I'd say repent, um, I could explain it to them because you've been charged with these children. You're you're to steward their life. And the scripture says from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep as you're walking along the way. And if you turn them over to people who are not going to teach as a foundation that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. Not only are you harming them, you're lying to them. They think that there's something else that's the way, the truth, and the life, because that's what their nice teachers are telling them. And let's face it, most young children usually like their teachers. You know, you have to get a little older before you hate school and you don't want to do your homework and the mean teacher, but the younger children end up trusting them. So how how can I tell my you know, my te- how can I say I don't like my teacher? Okay, she might be a lesbian or she might be any number of things. She's so nice. She made us cupcakes for my birthday, right? To put your children in that position is to do them harm. And as your introduction says, because I listened to a number of your podcasts, Christian education is the love of life because Jesus Christ is the life. That's right. Yep. Do you have any follow-up questions about homeschooling? Was, um, if not, I'm going to take the the turn over to theonomy. Yeah, and one of I'm, those more dense subjects that are actually really great. Yes, I'm ready to go there. You want to go there? Yeah. And okay. if you want to come back to homeschooling, there's no rule that says we can't go back and forth. Sure. <laughs> okay, great. So regarding theonomy, for you know, for a lot of people, even for Christians, they go, "Well, what's that?" Give us a basic definition of theonomy, and then we'll kind of just go from there. Okay, so basically there's, it's the concept, and I have to kind of draw a bigger picture. Man is always going to be governed by some law, right? So the question is, is it going to be theonomic? Is it theonomy? Or is it autonomy? So who gets to make the rules? Well, humanism and every other religion other than biblical Christianity can be umbrellaed under humanism is saying, man says this. Now, sometimes it could be a particular man that said it, or it could be you decide for yourself. In any case, that philosophy, that religious view, according to scripture, leads to death. If you obey God, if you know what he says will bring blessing, well, that, and you do it, then you'll be blessed. So Christian faith, biblical faith is knowing who is the creator, knowing who is the savior and everything he said, which praise God, he 
had written down in a book that we can carry around with us and apply to our life is law according to God. So theonomy is God's law. Why that should be such a bugaboo to people? Well, I think part of the answer is they've been trained in humanistic schools and they have listened to humanistic sermons. So talk to us, we'll go back to theonomy, but talk to us about antinomianism, which kind of is the, I think, the antithesis really of theonomy in a lot of ways. Well, you can define antinomianism is against God's law, because as I said, people are going to have a law, right? I used to tell my children, um, you know, the mafia, everybody likes to pick on the mafia, but the mafia (laughs) has rules. Thou shalt not kill us. Thou shalt not steal from us. They just don't agree that they can't kill you and they can't steal from you. So they have a law and lots of um, gangs and whatnot. When one group disobeys what the one the other group said, this is law, then you have wars and you have conflict. So there's going to be a law. Antinomianism is specifically being against God's law and not caring whether or not the definitions that God puts forth, which he's given us in his word, matter. So Rush Dooney used to make the example, you got a dartboard. The person who is saved by grace, it's not that we don't still sin, but we throw the dart, we're aiming for the bullseye, but we miss, right? When I play darts, I usually miss the bullseye. I get lucky now and then. The antinomian is the one who isn't even trying to hit the bullseye, not even maybe even hit the dartboard. In other words, law or right and wrong, ethics and morality are by his or her definition, not by anything that transcends them. Mm -hmm. So why are so many Christians antinomian in nature? Why do so many Christians say God's law is emeritus? God's law is passed? We are free. We have complete liberty to kind of do what we want. We just need to obey that 11th commandment, which is be nice to everybody. Right. 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 Well, I always take people back to the parable Jesus told about the sheep and the goats. One of the scariest sentences in scripture is I never knew you. I don't think anybody who's really thinking and understands the word of God ever would want to hear that sentence go away. I don't know you. Right. So how do people come to a conclusion that God doesn't really mean what he says, but the IRS does, you know, so I better fill out my taxes by the deadline. I better do it just so way that I don't get in trouble, but they don't tithe. Well, the tithe is God's tax. No, he doesn't have a collection agency that comes and gets it. And he doesn't garnish your wages or have deductions or force you to have somebody else remove that part of your money. Mm-hmm. But we take man's law, specifically status law, much more seriously than we take God's law. Yeah. So how'd that happen? Well, Adam and Eve liked their own law and we inherited that sin. Yes, Those of us who are born again have a new nature, but part of our sanctification or our sanctification is becoming holier. So that what happens is more and more we recognize what sin is and we endeavor to put it away, put away the old man, and then follow God. 
But if you're being taught that it doesn't really matter, and that no matter what you do is acceptable to God, then you're not going to have a conscience that's informed by scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it says that the Lord will write his law on our hearts. So the thing that's hard for me to understand for when we talk about this a lot is if someone's a Christian, it seems innate that the spirit of God would write his law on their hearts when they become Christians. And yet, again, we're, we're here talking about Christian antinomian type people who go, you know, God can, I can be, you know, gay. I can do what I kind of want to want to do in life. I can sleep around. I can watch porn or whatever. Um, and, you know, not really need to repent of it. So right. what would you say, I guess, to those quote unquote Christians that are in that or kind of, I, I don't know, maybe fall for, it's hard to decipher between from the outside looking in how we should look at people who we have all of our lives considered, well, these are, you know, quote unquote believers. They say they know Jesus. They say they love him. They go to church. They, you know, baptize their kids, whatever. Um, They read their Bibles. They pray even. They may even say Jesus is Lord, but there's this sort of disregard for theonomy or God's law. Okay, so Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. Okay, so how are you going to find out what the will of the father is? Well, it's written in the books of the Old and the New Testament. Okay, too many people think that you will know them by their profession of faith. That's not what Jesus said. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. Now, why did he say that? Because are we giving out the tickets to heaven? No, we don't give out the tickets to heaven, right? Good theology doesn't get you into heaven. Bad theology doesn't keep you out of heaven. God's electing grace is what gives the spirit of God to individuals who then, because of the spirit, repent of their sin and now don't know everything. Like you guys have children, right? Okay. Yeah. How old is your child? We have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 16-month-old. Okay. The 16-year-month-old can't write. So is she really a person? <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's really a person. The 10-year-old, I'm assuming, can write. Yes. Right? He has or she has been taught. And so there's nothing in the Bible that says when you're born again, you know everything nor does it say you're fully sanctified because we bring baggage with us. And the difference is that prior to our conversion, prior to being justified by Christ, I used to tell my kids, you're a sin factory. That's all you can do. All you can churn out is sin. Even if sometimes you do things that are nice, deep down inside, you know, right and wrong. Book of Romans says we do. Right. So that's why you hide when you take the cookie. That's why when you, you know, hit your sister in the face, you say, I didn't do it. She did it to me first. We all know what right and wrong is. But the scripture says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So rather than dealing with people by their professions of faith, we look around and say, "Okay, how is this person acting? What does this person do now? 
It takes some discernment, the difference between someone who is new to the faith and learning. I joke and I say, you know, the sins I thought were bad and my righteousness, it was good when I was converted. I look back now and some of my bigger awareness of sin comes from the fact of how arrogant I was, how prideful I was, how I was better than other people or or whatever it is. So sanctification is progressive. But I think what's happened is with what has been referred to as easy believism or, you know, accept Jesus into your heart. Welcome to the family. Yeah. Well, you know what? You guys have country clubs where you live. I have them around here. I walk in and I say, I'm a member. And they say, I'm sorry, you're not. I go, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I really feel like I'm a member. I've accepted the fact that I'm a member. And they're saying, no, they're, that's not how it works. Well, why do we think it happens that way? with Christianity. You know, boom, I just say I am and I am. Well, the fact is, we don't make ourselves Christians. So if you're becoming convicted of your sin, and we'll do this with our children, because they have to be trained into seeing what you did was wrong there, even though I know you know it was wrong, but I'm going to train you as to understand why it's wrong, that ultimately, we become aware of the fact that God has changed us. We don't do the changing. And I think it's Cornelius Van Til that is quoted as saying, if there was a button that man could hold down so that he wouldn't have to obey God, his finger would never be off that button. That's where it would be because that's our fallen human nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. It is. Now, you had questions about God's law. I did. I did. So um, because this. All of this is kind of newer to us. We've both been believers since we were children, but um, this whole idea of theonomy and Rush Dooney's work, it's newer. So even though I was raised in a Christian home, the idea of God's law is just now like, oh, you really need to obey even Old Testament things. So like when you say God's law, what all do you mean? Like, what are you referring to? All right, Rashtuna used to use the term law word, law dash word. And what he meant is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I'm not just talking about those red letters in your New Testaments. So God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had writers convey what God wants his people to know. All right, we can go into a discussion as... How do we know they didn't change anything or how do we know that they got it right? That's a different discussion for a different time, but it's worth talking about. So God's law is what he wants us to know about him. So the law of God reveals the character of God. So God values life. He's the creator of life. There are circumstances, pardon me, there are circumstances where a life will be taken, but those are outlined and, and delineated in God's law. What's happened with too much of the law is we relegate it to the old, as you put it, Jesse, you know, scripture emeritus or God emeritus. We don't really have to know about that. And so, you know, two thirds of the Bible become irrelevant. But let me give you an example of a relevancy that's Old Testament that might apply today during the wonderful world of COVID. 
So if you remember the story of Daniel and his three friends, and his three friends ended up in a furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the king. Well, if you look at the beginning of Daniel chapter three, the first thing the king does after he builds this statue of himself that has to be worshiped is he calls all his bureaucrats. They're the first ones who get called. They're the ones who have to bow down. Well, if they bow down, then in fact, they can enforce it under the people who are under them. Think about the affront, the affront to the king when the three men said, no, we won't, we won't bow down. And you know what? If we live, we live. If we die, we die. We still won't bow down. He got so mad. He said, let's go ahead and make that furnace even hotter. Well, the first people who died were the people who made it hotter and carried them in. So lest anyone thinks today that they're in any position of authority, whether you're the HR department or you're the mayor or whatever it is, understand that carrying out wicked orders will have consequences to you. So you can't just say, I'm following orders. Those guys were following orders and they died. And the three men came out alive, right? So that's not a guarantee that anytime that you obey God in what he says, that there won't be, because there were plenty of martyrs who lost their life because they stood up for it. But we have to take a principle that's laid out in the scripture, right? And say, how would that apply to today? Because that hasn't changed. And that's our history. Now, history in the scripture is telling you how God carries things out. So people will often bring up, well, you know, Jacob had four wives. Yes, he did. All right. And you look at the the law of God. Clearly, Jesus said, one man, one woman. And so polygamy was a lesser good than one man and one woman. But in scripture, it would be better to be married and take care of that family rather than the modern thing you sleep around and you don't take care of your own children, right? So if you're trying to find problems with scripture, you'll find them because you're looking through the the eyes of unbelief. But if you're looking through the eyes of belief and say, okay, God wants me to understand something here, then you won't stand in judgment of God. You'll say, Lord, tell me what I'm supposed to know. And if you ever lose that fear of the Lord, which is a prerequisite to be wise, to have understanding and knowledge, then you won't, right? So we have to remain humble as we're grateful for the the enlightenment that God gives us as we understand his word, but never forget that, but for God's grace, we'd be like all those other people we tend to like to criticize. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's good. It's very good. Um, Is there a way that we are to understand any of the law differently because of Jesus and the new covenant? Yes. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it the new covenant and the old covenant. Right. All right. So under the old covenant, Moses was told that there would be a series of sacrifices. Those sacrifices were always a foreshadowing to Christ. The high priest and the priests were a foreshadowing to Christ. So the whole system, the whole sacrificial system involved two roles 
sacrificer or the high priest and the 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 actual sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled both. So we don't go and get a calf or get a sheep and we bring it to that because the fulfillment of that foreshadowing took place in Jesus Christ at Calvary. He was not only the lamb, but he's the high priest who offered himself up. So clearly that's a change. Um, The Passover was again, a foreshadowing of the Passover in terms of under the blood of Christ, they were under the blood that was on the door, a foreshadowing of being under the blood of Christ. Therefore, there was a change of ordinance, you might say, or ritual or remembrance was go from the Passover meal to people being baptized. Excuse me, the Passover meal was the Lord's Supper, circumcision was being baptized. Other than that, there's very little that's a whole lot different, especially because in AD 70, the temple was destroyed, has not been rebuilt. So there is no place to go and offer the sacrifice. So that was the end of the old dispensation or the Old Testament. And the New Testament is, where's the temple? Where it? Mm-hmm. And, and what a privilege that is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So in one of your recent episodes, you talked about the 613 laws right. uh, in the Old Testament. And then, of course, there's the Ten Commandments. So what if I'm a New Testament Christian? I'm, you know, I'm the temple. Uh, and I say it's just, you know, it's fine if I just obey these Ten Commandments, but I don't give regard to the 613 laws. Okay. So Jesus told us. Uh, do I need to know all of them? Do I need to memorize each and every? Does that mean? Yes, there's going to be a test. Jeff. There's going to be a test. Well, I have Rush Juni's Institutes of, uh, of, 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 the, of the Law, Volume okay, 1. Okay, it's an open book test. So, no. Okay, good. Well, it's a pretty big book. <laughs> I know. And I've Not taught big... through that book for 20 years. Wow. Um, wow. So and even then, I have to go back and look. Yeah. So the point of enumerating 613 laws is and the reason we brought it up isn't that we can now you know to be a good christian you have to recite all six the 613 in order no it's to point out the difference between like i live in california the state of california produces thousands and thousands of laws each year right so the bible that thing we can carry around if you're going to enumerate the commandments or the laws there is 613 but jesus gave us two great commandments to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. The 10 commandments are a further explanation of those two commandments. And then the case law that follows is a further explanation or application of those laws. So here's one that people will recognize. If you happen to be privileged enough to have a pool in your backyard, most city ordinances will require that you put a fence around that pool. That's a biblical principle being applied because in scripture, the houses at the time were flat roofs at the top. In the summertime, people would go up and sleep there. They would have to have a railing, a parapet, I think it was called, around it because people's lives could be in danger. 
That's an application of thou shalt not kill. In other words, we have to respect human life and we have to make provisions so that a life won't unnecessarily or carelessly be taken. So things like speed limit laws are appropriate because if the backdrop of that is that we want to preserve life, then it's a law that has its roots in scripture. And any law that usurps or is contradictory towards the law of God that the state might make up is not a law that a Christian should abide in. Is that correct? Right. It's the differentiation between what is legal mm-hmm. under a humanistic system. So we can, you know, forcing people to go to a public school, government school is a usurpation of parental rights. Um, making it legal to kill children in the womb is a violation of thou shalt not kill. The whole idea of no fault divorce, you know, goes against the idea that you shouldn't commit adultery. Um, it shouldn't be easy to abandon your family because the scripture says you're worse than an infidel if you do. So there are all sorts of things that if you take a look at our society and things that most Christians would tell you um, where, oh gosh, it's awful. You can go back to a failure to abide by God's law. No. Do you have a follow-up at all with uh, any law question? Well, just going through the Old Testament and with this in mind, there's a lot that happens um, that is what do you do with this kind of questions. So I'm sure the more and more we read Rush Dooney, the more that will help. Um, But I guess there's lots of things recently I've read about um, the two guys who um, gave unauthorized fire and they died. God just um, killed them right there on the spot. Or like the man who was collecting sticks on the Sabbath and they took it to God to see what he thought. And he said, take him outside the camp and stone him. Like just, I guess, what are some of those, what are we supposed to be getting from those and applying? What are the modern applications? Are those things always something you can pull a principle straight through or I guess just what's our understanding supposed to be as we're reading some of the harder things in the New Testament or even the provisions for slavery. Um, Yeah, those things. Okay. So the Bible is a very practical book. God is not surprised that man sins. As a matter of fact, the law of God is to help us when we trespass or violate each other, right? So just take the two first instances you gave, strange fire, collecting sticks. We always want to get a letter from our parents that say why we shouldn't be responsible for the trouble we got in at school or something like that. How about approaching it from the point of view of God? And we're not just talking about some elected individual. God gives laws. If we value God, and as I mentioned earlier, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, you don't mess with him. So what is it about man that thinks we can mess with him and still get a participation trophy? Um, No, right? My children used to take umbrage at the poor guy who's walking alongside the ark 
it starts to tumble. He touches it uh, right. to make it not fall, and he immediately loses his life. Yeah. Well, I first read that. I would have been that guy. I would have been that guy because, you know, you can't do this. Well, first of all, does the Bible say that man went to hell? No. It doesn't say that. Silent about it. Yeah. In other words, obviously, God doesn't require that we know everything. He's not going to have us know everything. But there was a point to be made, and that's recorded. Right. So first and foremost, if we lose a sense that God is God, that's why the first commandment of the 10 is to have no other gods before God. Mm -hmm. I don't think people take the commandments as commandments. They look at them as suggestions Mm -hmm. and they have this like they're going to stand in judgment of God. Well, you have children, you know, when your toddler puts his or her hands on the hips and says, I'm not going to listen to you. And and you know that, no, that person is going to listen to you because you're the parent, right? Why do we have a different view of God that says um, he'll let us get away with stuff? Well, then he's not good if he lets us get away with sin and he doesn't love us. If he doesn't treat us as children, I used to joke with people when they were upset about something that happened in their life, even though they had done something wrong themselves to happen. I said, congratulations, you're not a bastard. (laughs) God loves you as a son. Right. right? Um, It's an important status. But if we take it for granted, it's like the child who takes for granted. You know, my kids used to tell me to get out of their room and I'd say, excuse me. This is your room only in as much as where you sleep. It's not your room. You have no proprietary interest in this other than I let you use it. Well, we do that to God. Get out of my room. Well, it won't end that well. Yeah. So in a particular case, in someone in the Old Testament who is dishonoring the Sabbath or not keeping it, and it leads to death, how do we, how, how, now, if somebody is sitting there listening or watching this, and they're thinking, now, wait a minute, this is what it says in the Old Testament. This is this is true. How do we translate that in, in our day and age? Do we just say, well, I, I, we need to take them out to the camp and, and stone them? Or how, how do we read these specific instances that happen and then translate them to now and honor the Lord and obey his law? Okay, that's a big question. And I yeah. think I can tackle it pretty well. Okay. When we say, what do we do about it? So let's go. I'm going to take a different thing. People say the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. So should we go out and stone homosexuals? Okay. First of all, the Bible never gives individual people to the right to go out and stone people, right? We don't just become the lawgiver and the the judge. So in scripture, for someone to be found guilty of something. It's on the testimony of two witnesses, at least, that have to agree. And there has to be a clear violation of God's law. All right. So the Sabbath is practiced differently now than it was then. However, the Sabbath commandment has not been canceled. So we're to work six days and rest one and rest in Christ, rest in our salvation, taking our hands off our lives to remember our lives are not our own, right? So as Rush Dooney puts it in uh, an interview I was watching recently, that seems like such a huge waste of time. One day in seven, one year in seven, and then the year of Jubilee. 
But remember, the Sabbath is very much tied into economics. So an economic system that makes people work all the time, we're in such now with inflation and taxation and what, this is a culture that was putting forth laws to govern every area of life and thought. And so to try to isolate one thing and people go, so you're going to go out and stone somebody who goes out and watches a movie on a Sunday. First of all, the Sabbath isn't the same as going to church. As a matter of fact, some people are more exhausted on Sundays than they are anything else because they don't rest from their labors. doesn't mean we don't go worship, but we are to rest in the Lord, not rest or get so active and you know, morning service, evening service, and the bake sale, and, you know, everything we're supposed to do. So of all the areas, I had to really grow in my faith to understand the Sabbath. Um, But I would obey before I would understand. And that really is the evidence of faith, that you obey before you understand everything. There are plenty of things I didn't understand in the past, but I understand now. And some of them seem arbitrary. I, I remember, I'll give you an example. You're probably familiar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the chapter that talks about how the Lord's Supper should be conducted. It says, Paul says, men should not have their heads covered, but women should cover their heads. Mm-hmm. Now, I grew up Catholic. And before the 1960s, you couldn't walk into a church if you were a girl or a woman without having your head covered, right? Well, somehow or other, um, that was changed. You didn't have to do it anymore. And if you watch older movies, you will see that women have their head covered, okay? So why do you do that? It doesn't make sense. So today, a lot of people say, it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense. So therefore, we shouldn't do it, as opposed to... The Bible says it, I don't understand, but I'll do it anyway, because the Bible says it, right? Well, I thought that for so long. I once bought a whole lecture series thinking it was going to be why women don't have to cover their heads. And it turned out to be why women should cover their heads. (laughs) So I was like, I was trying to get out of it. Now, when we would go worship at Vallecito with Dr. Rush Judy at his chapel there, Not every woman did, but his wife, his daughter-in-law would cover their head. They never told everybody, you're a sinner, get out of this church if you don't do it. But the more I learned, you know, there's this really interesting part that says, because of the angels. What does that mean? I'm still not sure I totally understand what it means. But you know what I learned personally? That when I began to cover my head in worship, God empowered me, started writing books. I became somebody that people would come to for mentoring and guidance and counsel. And it's really power on my head. So to me, to enter worship without my head covered would be like showing up without clothes on. Hmm. Can I fully fully explain that to you? No. Hmm. And I remember asking Rush shortly before he died, Like, what is it with this, um, this commandment? And he said, when people, specifically women, 
and their husbands encouraging them to follow this commandment, you will know that there's revival happening. Why? Because they're doing what the Bible said, because the Bible said it. Now, not everybody agrees with me on this point. So I should say that, and I'm not going to make it a mark of a Christian or not, but it's an example of, it's an easy thing to do. It's a lot harder to do some of the other things the Bible requires. This is cover your head. And incidentally, men don't cover your head. Right. Okay. So it tells us something about authority. It tells us something about the structure of the family. It tells us that even though some women don't like it, that God has placed man over women but that doesn't mean he beats her and it's like the, the um, stone man who's like dragging her by the hair. This is a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. But at the end of the day, the husband is the head. This is so important that the whole relationship between Christ and his church is like a marriage. So are we going to be egalitarian with Christ? No, no we shouldn't. <laughs> right. right? In the same way, a wife submits to the authority of the position of her husband, but anybody who has a healthy marriage knows that a husband would be foolish not to listen to his wife, and a wife needs to make sure she's understood, and you, if you're going to argue on something, you argue biblically, not I'm stronger than you, I'm the man, or, you know, or whatever it is. In other words, if we both agree that God's law reigns, then we might have to spend some time battling it out as to what's applicable and why. Mm -hmm. But the the head covering is just a small area of obedience, right? Tithing is more challenging for people with a society that has heavy taxation. But for a woman to cover her head, it's pretty easy if you just do it. And I know a lot of people aren't going to like that. That's very interesting. I'm going to have to chew on that. Yeah, I know. And and you know what I tell people? And and, and like I said, for 20 years, I've taught biblical law to women, either individually or in groups, whether it's the subject of infant baptism or adult baptism, whether it's should children take communion or not. God gives authority to husbands and wives, moms and dads, right? that you should never act until you're doing it in faith. Scripture says anything that's not done in faith is sin. So if you say yes, Courtney, because Jesse's forcing you to, then you're not doing it in faith. And if Jesse, if you're forcing her to do it and you don't have her agreement or her understanding, I tell people, I don't think there's a timer going here. Come to an understanding, act in a united way, husbands and wives. And this would go through whether you homeschool or not, all the various decisions you do, do them in faith. So if you're not doing it in faith, the scripture says that's a sin. You've got to do it in faith. So give yourself some time. So it took me a while. And here's a funny story. So when I decided that I was supposed to do it, I said to my husband, "Um, I think I'm supposed to cover my head in worship. And he says, well, do what you want. And I said, oh, is that true about adultery too? And he went, no, it's not true. But I said, oh, I see. So there are just some laws that I can follow and not. I said, tell me to cover my head in worship. He says, I don't want to say that. I said, tell me. He said, well, the scripture says you should, so you should. And it was like, we had to be in agreement on that. 
Well, my daughters at the time, I said, okay, we're going to cover our head in worship. Well, I had one daughter who decided she was always going to push the limit. So she put on her Reebok hat. (laughs) And I was like, you can't do that. You can't wear a Reebok hat. And my husband said she covered her head and she's (laughs) only doing it to get your goat. I said, it's fine. Guess what? She took it off and put something else on because it was just to get my goat. Right (laughs) Now, some people would say you forced your daughters to do that. Well, that was going to be the practice of the family. Now, do they do it? You know, that, that's not my concern. You know, once they're married and they're under somebody else's authority and, you know, we're all going to be judged based on how we respond to God's law. Now, again, that doesn't mean, okay, you're not going to heaven, you're going to heaven. That's God's call. But we do know we're going to have to answer for everything we think, do, and, and you know, say. And so um, our job as parents is an educational role knowing that we can command behavior and to some degree we can command speech. You're not allowed to say that here, but you tell your child not to think about something. You have no jurisdiction because you can't enforce it. Right. You can tell them if you are thinking this, let me tell you that there would be consequences, but children even need to know that they stand before God. Yeah. yeah. So did I answer your question? <laughs> Yes. And you gave me things to think about. (laughs) So that's good. I guess if the Holy Spirit convicts you, you know, like I said, it's not like there's different rules and like, okay, you can choose you like this and you can choose you like that. But I don't interfere with your relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Sure. So if you want to have understanding and you want to obey God, what's a good place to start? with understanding some of these things that are harder or that are culturally not practiced. Right. Um, I would say um, begin to learn, begin to read. And this is how I tell people to go through the institutes, especially if we're going to have a discussion about it. Right. I say, have a book that says, wow, I really agree with that. Or I have a question about that. Or I definitely don't agree with that. Right. And that's what we discuss. And that's what we talk about. Right. Um, I tell at the beginning of any study I do, the goal here is not that you agree with everything RJ Rushduni says or anything Andrea Schwartz says. You're allowed to disagree with me. What you're not allowed to do in any of my studies is to present a different basic doctrine. There is no Trinity. Uh, No, sorry. That's not what we're going to talk about. Jesus really isn't fully God and fully man. No, it's based on, you know, if if you can read through the apostles creed and say, yes, I agree to that. Yes. I, yes, I, I, I believe that that's a heartfelt conviction. Then we can grow on it, but I don't debate the basics of the faith with people. I mean, not that I won't, but that doesn't become part of my study, especially a group study. Sure. One of the things I should tell you that's kind of funny what happens is that there is a point in a study. Now, an institute study that I've conducted with people takes about three and a half years. So because we're going to just do a section of a chapter every week. Right. And sometimes and I have a series of questions that people can kind of go through. And so it takes a while. But there is a point at which people, I call it turn the corner. And it's like, oh, 
I see the law isn't a burden. This is a blessing. I see how, you know, but then they say, I just don't understand how people can't understand. I went, wait a minute. This was you two years ago. So don't get so high and mighty that you can't see how people don't get it. And that's my, my suggestion to people who are getting theonomy, right? You both said you were Christians from children. I'm not going to doubt you were Christians from children. You were Christians from children, yeah. you know, but something has spurred you on to learn more, understand more, and even have these irritating questions. And trust me, Courtney, I had them and I still have them. <laughs> right. Um, that's why I said that I would argue with Dr. Rush. How could this be so? And he'd say, would you like I didn't write it. So don't (laughs) yell at me sort of thing. Right. As you grow in the faith, God will bring people to you, ask you questions. Some of the best learning I've had is in the context of having group studies where people will say things and I'll go, wow, I never thought of that. And this is one of my students who is sure that I'm smart about everything. And I was like, no, you just taught me something. Because when we dig into God's word, we refine each other. Right. And the beautiful part about biblical Christianity is um, you got a lifetime to do this. That's why I said there's no timer on it. You know, if it's five years from now that you change your mind on a particular thing. okay, in God's timing. But as long as you're being faithful, like what I knew with the head covering thing, I wasn't being faithful when I was going like this. I don't want to know. I don't want to talk about it. Right. So much so that I actually pursued something that I thought was going to agree with me. And it turned out it didn't. (laughs) I got convicted that that's what it says. You know, people want to go, well, but that's what it says. Just like it says, God created in six days and rested on the seventh. It's what it says. If we're going to sit there and go, well, it doesn't really mean that. Well, then you got other problems, you know, but for people who say, I'm going to take the Bible at what it says, and I don't understand it all. Well, join the club. But you believe in order to understand. You don't say, wait, I'm not going to believe until I understand this, because there's some things you may never understand. Yeah. Apart from the Institutes, what other book would you recommend someone who may be new to Chalcedon, had never heard of it, and you're saying, oh, I really want to give you this Rush Juni book? What? Okay, there's two, I would say. Okay. There's a small pamphlet called Faith and Obedience, which is actually the introduction to the Institutes. Mm. So it gives a general view of where the book will be going. Okay. The other one is called Law and Liberty. And I call that Institutes Light. Yeah. Right. But um, for both of those, I have put together a series of questions that will go through each book in its entirety. So you can do the study with other people and have conversations. And these are questions for thought and discussion. There is no right answer. Mm -hmm. It's meant to get you thinking. So um, I would recommend that if people are interested, they can go to something called the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Mm-hmm. which is cttiorg sign in subscribe there's no charge and then there's a series of courses that have been outlined where you can have questions for discussion it tells you read this chapter and then related um lectures and the beauty of the institutes and maybe you guys know it maybe you don't 
with the exception, I think, of two sections, Dr. Rush Juni lectured on every section in that book. So you could listen to what he had to say and also listen at the end, because at the end of all his sermons or lectures, he would do something that very few pastors ever do. And that is, are there any questions? <laughs> Most pastors are like, I don't want to have anybody ask me questions. But he would always say, are there any questions? First, he would say on this lesson, and yeah. then anything else you want to ask. And some of the best teaching comes out of those questions, because people are asking questions just like we would ask. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's great. What is so? So, if you had only one Rush Dooney book yourself for the rest of life, what book would you keep on your shelf if there was only one you could have for you? I I guess a a better way to phrase the question is what book has meant the most to you in all of your reading? I assume you've read most, if not all, of his works. What book for you has made the most profound impact? Well, Institutes. And I'll put it this way if I had to take three books with me on a desert island, I was only allowed three. I would take the Bible. I would take institutes and something that would tell me what to eat and not kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it would be. Well, not Um, kill yourself would be the Bible. So you have. Well, no, no. Eating a poisonous berry or something like that. I mean, in other words, how to rub two sticks together to make a fire. I I would recognize that the goal would be maybe to survive. But it would be the Bible and then the institutes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Wonderful. And then now you've written eight, eight books. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And then what? Two were on homeschooling. Oh, okay. Two were on the family. Mm-hmm. Two were geared to women, especially. And then two are my read aloud storybooks, which are stories about my family and how we dealt with things like faith, repentance, um, you know, restitution, things like that. And I joke and I say the names were changed to protect the guilty (laughs) (laughs) because they're all true stories. And my adult children will go back and read and go, yeah, that was me. Oh, I remember (laughs) that day. I remember how that happened. But it's meant really to help parents know how do you deal with these kinds of subjects? And I used to tell people family stories and they would say, you need to put this in a book. And so I did. So you can get my books on Amazon okay. um, or you can get them at calcedon.edu. Wonderful. Very good. Do you have any follow-up questions? Um, there's still so much to yeah, talk about and lot, so many different but... things. We didn't well, let me just say this, guys. We don't have to be on a podcast for you to ask me questions. We can Very stay good. in touch. That's fine. Very good. Perfect. Very well, thank good. you so much for your time. And definitely you should check out Out of the Question podcast because she goes into lots of things and it's very insightful and helpful um, and just helps in our learning of applying God's word to our lives more and more. Well, it's a privilege to be able to do it. And I appreciate you guys for what you're doing. I think more people should realize that the size of your audience doesn't matter. What really matters is that you recognize your audience. So for parents, your audience are your children. Yeah. or your extended family. But uh, the audience is also the guy who fixed the washing machine when it breaks and the clerk at the grocery store and the person you're waiting in line with. We have so much to share with people that we can great commission it in yeah. so many different situations. Right. And isn't that the goal of Christian reconstruction overall yeah. through the great commission? Absolutely. But Absolutely. whatever station in life we're in, 
That's right. where we're in. And that's where God has called us. And communicating that to children is very important as well, because none of us know how long God's going to give us. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the fact is, if we all understand that we were created for a purpose to glorify God, to enjoy him and to obey him, then life becomes um, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I maybe we can put a link to your article about one bite at a time, because mm-hmm. that was so helpful, because as we talk about and we see the humanistic society we live in and how far we are from God's law um, as a culture, as a whole, even within Christians, um, it's overwhelming. But that article is really helpful to just say, but you can start today and you start with yourself and you start with your family and it makes a difference. Um, so even though the task is huge, there are very practical things that we can do immediately to absolutely be, be faithful. And our God is so unique in as much as a little bit of obedience brings blessing. Now, in the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, where he's specifically talking about the need to tithe. And that's a huge subject. Maybe someday we'll talk about the tithe for 45 minutes. But there's a beautiful image that says, if you obey me, you will not be able to outrun my blessings. Now, I'm not a fast runner. (laughs) Right. But there are people who run fast. Right. But God's promising you will not outrun his blessing. So no matter what happens with tyrannical governments, um, natural disasters, whatever it is, God is never going to leave us or forsake us or ever let us go. And, you know, people say, what if we starve to death? What are they coming? The next step is heaven. You know, gee. (laughs) Right. <laughs> oh, bummer. <laughs> oh, gee, I get to stand before the Lord in his presence. Right. Yeah, let's stop that. <laughs> right, right. That's no good. Very good. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, well, you're you. welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.